This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's more money with leading economist Steve Moore. Now, here's your host, Steve Moore. Good afternoon, folks. This is the More Money Show on Talk Radio WABC. Thank you so much for joining. As always, I am Steve Moore, economist, thrilled and uh, flattered that I have this opportunity to talk to you every Saturday afternoon. I hope you're having a wonderful weekend, by the way. It's just gorgeous weekend across, uh, in terms of the weather across America. So I hope you're getting out and enjoying the sunshine and the warm weather and the wonderful fresh air. I want to talk about so much of the news that's going on to this week. This was an incredible week for economic news. We have a president who seems to be completely out of touch with what, with what is going on in America with respect to our economy. So I want to walk you through this in my opening segment about the reality of the economy and what Joe Biden is telling America. So you may recall just a week or so ago, uh, Joe Biden was whispering into the microphone. Isn't that weird? Sort of how he does that. It's kind of creepy. He whispers and he said, um, he said, let me tell you something about dynamics. It's working. It's working. It's working. So let's look at these statistics that came out this week. And you be the judge of this, folks. You be the judge of whether you think these policies that Joe Biden has put in place are working for America. Because I can't see much that is working. Uh, Biden gave another speech just a few days ago saying the same things, uh, a litany of things that are supposedly going right about the economy. But I couldn't think of a worse time for a president to give such a speech because here's what happened this week in terms of the latest statistics that are coming out of his own administration about the reality of Bidenomics. So let us start, if I may, with the report that came out on Tuesday morning by the Census Bureau. Now, the U.S. Census Bureau puts out what I consider and most economists consider the gold standard of economic data that is the best that we have about what's really happening with people's finances, with people's incomes, with people's jobs, uh, and what's happening with respect to poverty. So every year they put out a report in September that is called uh, an update on people's incomes and the poverty rate in America. And so here is what that study found. Now, by the way, this is for 2022. It's the for the complete year of 2022. But again, it's the best data that we have. The first thing that they found was that the poverty rate in the United States uh, went up by a record amount in 2022, which is strange because we're in supposed recovery. COVID is long over. The economy should be booming right now. So why in the world did the poverty rate double under Biden in his second year in office? And the explanation for that is because inflation was so high, millions of Americans saw their incomes plunged lower, and especially people who are very poor, who got poorer. And so you have a big increase in poverty for Americans. I thought this was a president who said he cared about the people at the bottom of the income ladder. They're doing worse. And an even more frightening statistic is that the child poverty rate, that is the percentage of Americans who are, uh, who are children and are poor, doubled. It doubled. So that means that we have twice as many children living in poverty today as we did when Biden came to office. How in the world is that a success? I mean, come on. All we've had is income redistribution programs. We're supposed to be benefiting the lowest income Americans, and that isn't happening. By the way, we're a rich country. We can keep people out of poverty. We can make sure that people aren't going homeless. We, can't, we can make sure that there are pe not people who are suffering from deprivation. We can make sure that people aren't going hungry, and yet that's not happening. Now, here's the amazing thing. Biden blamed these bad numbers on supposed 
uh, mean-hearted Republicans who are not funding welfare programs. So I checked the numbers. The amount of money that the United States government spent on anti-poverty programs in the year 2022, the year that we saw the massive increase in poverty, was $1.1 trillion. That's one followed by 12 zeros. So wait a minute, we spent a trillion dollars to fight poverty and we still have 40 million people in poverty? Is there something wrong with these programs? What are we doing wrong? How can you spend that much money with $1 trillion? If you just gave, write a check to people, you could pull every American out of poverty with about half that amount of money. So what is going on with these programs? It's clearly not benefiting the people that it should. So the poverty numbers are a disgrace. Then we had numbers that came out in income. And these numbers confirm what I've been saying on the More Money Show for the last two years, which is that the Biden administration is bad. His policies are bad for working class Americans. So the median household income in America, and by the way, you all know, um, the median means half of the families are above that level and half of the families are below that level. So it's the people in the exact middle. Those folks' incomes fell by two th- more than $2,000 in real terms. In other words, the middle class is getting poor under Biden. The poor are getting poor under Biden. Who's getting richer? Who's get- By the way, even high-income people did worse under Biden. So everybody did worse in terms of their income in the first two years of Biden. Now, to be fair, this is through the end of 2022. 2023 is turning out to be a better year than 2023. Inflation is not rising by 8% as it was last year. It's only growing by 4%, but that's still a high number. And uh, you know, people's incomes are starting to creep a little bit above inflation, but not nearly enough to make up for the lost ground in the first two years of Biden. So those are terrible numbers. Then we had a number that came out I think it was Wednesday or Thursday, that found that the inflation number, which had been going down mercifully, is going back up again. It's going back up again. We're back up to 4% inflation. And the monthly number, if we had that monthly number for the rest of the year, we'd be talking about 7% inflation. So we're not conquering inflation. We haven't fixed the problem. And all you have to do to... um, you know, verify what I'm saying is go to the gas pump, folks. We now have $90 a barrel oil, which is the equivalent of about $425, $450 a gallon at the pump. Now, in the New York area, you're already paying more than that. You're probably going to see $5 gal- gasoline. And I want to remind you all that the gas price when Donald Trump left office was $2.39 a gallon. So, how is that a success? Now, finally, The other big story that we saw this weekend dealing with the economy had to do with the United Auto Workers, the UAW strike. And the UAW, uh, that's something like 20,000 workers. I don't remember the exact number, but sometimes we're around that number. They want a 40%, rough 35 to 40% four-year increase in their wages and salaries. And they want, instead of to work, to be paid for a a 40-hour-a-week job, they want Uh, work 32 hours a week. Now, listen, I'm in favor of higher wages for American workers. I want the American worker, every one of you listening to the show, if you're a worker, I want you to be as paid as highly as as you can. (laughs) And so that has to happen in a booming economy, which we do not have right now. But I can guarantee you, if the UAW were to win this strike and they were to get a 40% pay increase and another 20% or so in the uh, in terms of their uh, uh, lower uh, number of hours worked, then you are going to put a lot of these companies and you're going to jeopardize Ford and GM and put them in bankruptcy. And this is every person who follows this industry tells you that you're, by the way, these companies are already losing money. And one of the reasons they're losing money, of course, is the the Biden administration is uh, kind of bribing them with billions of dollars to build uh, these electric vehicles. But guess what? The percentage of cars that are being bought today that are electric vehicles is less than 10%. 
So that means 90% of the people buying cars don't want an electric vehicle, but Ford and, and GM are buy our purchase. I mean, I'm sorry, they're producing the cars that people don't want. So this is all adding up to an economic calamity. And I wonder how many of you agree with me that these policies are not working for American companies. They're not wor uh, uh, working for American energy companies, and they're not working for the American worker. So to somehow say that Bidenomics has been a success is like saying the Hindenburg was a successful voyage. Well, folks, I don't think this is going to have a happy ending. I think we're going to see continued troubles for the U.S. economy, and we have to change course. I had a conversation with uh, President Trump a week or two ago. I asked him what he's going to do to fix these problems with America, and he said he's going to have a stack of executive orders on his desk on the first day that he reenters the Oval Office, and I think that's going to happen in January of 2025, and he is going to reverse all these policies that are making America poor. I'm going to be right back, folks. This is the More Money Show on WBC Talk Radio. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. Armor All. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. This is More Money with economist Steve Moore. Now, Steve Moore. Welcome back, folks. This is the More Money Show on WBC Talk Radio. I'm economist Steve Moore, and now we turn to my favorite segment of the show when we ask two of the best in the financial business about how best to manage and uh, your money. And I'm, I'm talking, of course, about Ryan and Chris Payne of Payne Capital Management. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining as usual. Uh, we have a lot of um, tumultuous events this week. We have the UAW strike. We had some new inflation numbers. We had numbers uh, with respect to what's happened with the poverty rate and uh, people's incomes. Uh, poverty rose and incomes fell. Now that's 2022. Ryan, how do we make sense of all of this? <laughs> uh, yeah, you said it. I mean, it was a wild week on Wall Street. You know, markets were up and down a lot this week. Um, you know, I think the bottom line is inflation has been a little stubborn, right? We saw this week the numbers came in a little higher than expected, Steve. But again, if I look at the big picture and those shelter costs, which are a lag in that number, mm -hmm. Yep. They should come down over the course of the next couple of months. I mean, the big wild card is going to be the headline inflation number, and that's the fact that oil prices right. are now over $90 a barrel. So yep. I think that is something to look out for because um, the American consumer definitely feels the pain, no pun intended, when you have higher oil prices. <laughs> and uh, uh, Chris, uh, as I look at the higher oil prices, I get a little worried because of energy, of course, is – uh, the master resource, and it's involved in everything else that we buy. So I'm worried that inflation is going to be kind of sticky at the four to five percent range for many months to come, which is well above, as you know, Chris, the uh, Fed's target inflation rate of two percent. That makes me worried that we might see another rate increase. What say you? 
Well, I mean, I think that I think you know that that is true. You know, the oil prices have come up pretty substantially, but I think you know the 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 smart bet here is that the Fed's not going to raise. Um, although there is a good probability that they'll probably raise towards the end of the year. Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing an impact of those higher rates, Chris, because mortgage rates have continued to go up. And I'm, I'm worried about the impact that that could have on housing prices. I have a friend in the Washington, D.C. area who recently said that she had to lower the price of her home. It was a, it's about a $1.1 million home by about $100,000 because the interest rates are so high. This is the first time in a while I've heard people talk about lowering their home price. Yeah, I mean, the housing market's been on a strong... Sorry, let me try that again. Sorry, guys. Three, two, one. Yeah, the housing market has been on a has really been on a tear, but you know it's just like anything else. Markets are cyclical. Um, you know, prices do have to moderate at some point. And yeah, I mean, the fact that interest rates are going up, you know, makes the the housing market a lot less attractive for folks that are in the market for a house. You know, that could be a good thing. Uh, yeah, that's true. Except for the fact that you're, um, you know, you're looking for your the reason the price is falling is because people have to pay the higher rates. And so it, it kind of, I think that the higher rates are a problem for both the buyer and the seller. But what you're saying, uh, Ryan, is that notwithstanding these higher energy prices, what what are you kind of forecasting or what do you think is the best estimate for what we're looking for for inflation for, say, the next six months or so? Yeah. I mean, all the numbers we look at still say that your core inflation, right, that, that actually takes energy out of the equation because um, it's more volatile. Um, we think it's going to be under 3% uh, over the next 12 months, and that's right in line with the Fed's target. So I, we're, we're disinflationists. Sorry, did, we sorry, did you say, sorry, I just want to, did you say you're looking at th- about, did you say 3% or? 3%, yeah. 3%, yeah, okay. Especially, absolutely. Boy, I'd take that um, in a heartbeat. I, sh- I sure hope you're right about that. I mean, I, I'm a little bit yeah. higher in my forecast. I think, you know, I think we're looking, as I just told Chris, to, uh, more in the 4 to 5% range. Uh, but, uh, you know, you're seeing food price. You're right that the core, which doesn't include energy and food, is lower. But, you know, those energy prices seem to be a kind of lead indicator about where the overall inflation rate is. So I, I don't know. It worries me a little bit. Now, what let's say that I'm right and you're wrong, which would be <laughs> <laughs> unusual. But uh, so let's say we we're talking about an inflation more in the four to five percent range. What impact is that? I mean, the magic question is. What impact will that have on people's investment opportunities? Well, first off, I think it's doing what the Fed wants it to do. You know, we're talking about the housing market slow, but that's what the Fed intended. (laughs) They wanted the economy to slow down. Right. Right. Um, And I think, you know, the point that the affordability has gone down means that the Fed probably doesn't have to do much more. Um, So I think that's going to make the Fed pause when we go to next year. And it's election year. I said this before. Call me cynical, but I do think that uh, the Fed chairman position is a political position. Um, You know, they're going to start to lower interest rates next year, because if you look at the 10 year Treasury um, and you look at the the 30 year mortgage, it's a 300 basis point spread. That's historically very high. It's typically about 150 basis points. So I could you could see mortgage rates come down by a point next year. And that would be a huge relief to the U.S. economy, to the consumer looking to buy a house. So right. I do think you are going to see the Fed at some point here going to taper off on interest rates, um, even if they stay a little higher. But look, we, we had great economies, you know, right. when the 10 year right. Treasury was at like four point seven, five percent or whatever it was. So yeah. even if rates are a little higher, here, I don't think that I don't think the economy can't grow. Um, and right. our, our view is it is going to grow next year. And, and I think that is a very bullish sign from an investment perspective. So, Ryan, the other big story this week, of course, is this uh ongoing uh, strike by United Auto Workers affecting some 20,000 workers. Uh, I'm worried about kind of the future of the U.S. auto industry. You know, they're being uh, steered into buying, uh, uh, I mean, producing EVs, electric vehicles. And a lot of Americans are saying they don't want electric vehicles. So I'm kind of worried about uh, the Ford and and GM uh stocks and their profitability. What say you? 
Uh, I mean, ironically, the stocks went up on the news. So I think a lot of that is actually priced <laughs> how, in right well, now. How do you Go explain figure, that right? one? <laughs> yeah, I'm still one, trying right? to figure that one out. But, <laughs> but I think it speaks to two things. <laughs> Number one, I think it speaks to two things. Number one, it, it does speak to the fact that we have a very tight labor market, which yep. I suspect is going to continue, which means I think wages will stay strong. And I the combination of, okay, inflation moderates. Maybe it doesn't come down yep. to the Fed's 2% target, but it moderates. But if wages continue to stay strong, and I think they will because we have a labor shortage in the country, too many baby boomers are retiring, we're not replacing those workers. Um, I think that just speaks to the strength of wages moving forward. Now, at some point, they've got to negotiate something. Um, it's a big problem for the entire economy. Uh, you know, auto is, is a huge part of our, our you know, economic output. Right. So uh-huh. you know, we, we got to come to a conclusion there somewhere. But I think the underlying theme here is, you know, wages aren't going down from here. Um, and yep. when you have full employment, strong wages, you don't go into recession. So, Chris, we have about a minute left. I'm wondering, you know, given this tumultuous uh, set of events in the last week or two, and you look at the markets going forward, you know, uh, what do you like? What what kind of industries do you like? What kind of stocks do you like? And is this a still a good time to be putting more money into the stock market? That's a great question, Steve. You know, I always think my clients are the best indicators for telling me where to, where the uh, the puck is going, as they say. Um, yep. And a lot of my clients aren't real happy with China right now. You know, China's starting to experience the, right. a downturn in their economy. So, yeah, I think you yep. know, things like the emerging markets are a great buy here. You know, it's always good to buy things when they're down. And, uh, you know, China. So, so which the- ones? Um, I saw that, you know, uh, w- which ones in particular are you bullish on? Yeah, I, I, again, I really like China at this point. You do. You're, yes. You think because they prices have come down, you think that China will make a comeback? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like how many okay. things do you own and use every day that are made in China? Right, 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 right. So that's an interesting point, uh, Ryan, uh, that maybe there's some buying opportunities with China right now. Everybody's down on China. Is that a time to buy? <laughs> It's a bullish sign. I know it's a little bit provocative to say that we, we do like China, but let's face it. It's the second largest economy in the world. Uh, they are going to reopen. They are starting to reopen. Their GDP growth is going to be positive. Uh, the fact that they have been weak is actually we're importing that disinflation. So that's actually yep, been good yep. for our economy. But we think at some point here, prices get too cheap. We think you're there. So you want to have a global portfolio here. You want to reposition globally. You just don't want to have a U.S. centric right. portfolio. Every economy does well long term, just a reminder based on history. So be yeah. global, be optimistic. That's uh, our viewpoint here, Steve. And any other country besides China in particular that you like? Um, I, I think all of Asia looks pretty good here. I mean, if you look at some of these emerging emerging markets like Indonesia, Vietnam, where a uh-huh. lot of the uh, you right. know, a lot of manufacturing is going there, Mexico uh, on the reshoring trend or nearshoring. Yep. Yep. Uh, they're yep. benefiting from that. They're having a great year this year. So Latin America, yep. commodity-based economies all benefit from the fact that oil prices are higher. So there's yeah. a lot of places yep. to put your money. All right. Well, that's great. So be bullish, folks. I guess that's the <laughs> message from the pains. Uh, Chris and Ryan, thanks so much for your sage advice. We will be right back. This is the More Money Show on WABC Talk Radio. So if you're thinking to yourself right now, okay, we get it. The world doesn't end very often. Maybe... Things aren't as bad as you've heard. Well, here's your shot to get a reevaluation of your portfolio retirement plan. Make sure you're on track, capitalizing on the fact that the world isn't going to end. We literally keep 10 slots open for the whole show. If you've saved over a million dollars for your retirement, myself and my brother Chris will run for you our now famous total financial master plan, and we'll do that with no obligation or cost. It's a full holistic review. There's no other firm out there that will do this work up front. We're going to go ahead and build you your own personalized financial portal give you a bird's eye view of your entire financial life and just hone in on every financial issue you need to address today. Whether it's an income plan for retirement, you need income to retire. When that paycheck stops, how do you generate income from your portfolio? How do you draw from your portfolios? How do you take social security? What's the best way for you without running out of money? We're going to put together a full dynamic income plan, show you how to live off your portfolio, factoring inflation so you don't run out of money. And we're going to look at diversification. Markets have been extremely volatile, extremely uncertain over the last two years. Has your portfolio been like a yo-yo? Or have you been sitting with way too much money in cash? Paralysis by analysis, trying to figure out what to do. We're going to put together a full investment game plan, show you how to grow your money, but most importantly, protect it over the rest of your life. And we're going to look at fees and taxes. 
Wall Street loves to sell you those high cost, tax inefficient products like annuities, insurance products, brokerage products, mutual funds, structured products. We're going to do a deep dive of every investment you own, show you how to reduce the cost and optimize your portfolio for taxes. It's not what you make. It's what you take. You'll get our full tax playbook. We literally have 10 slots open for the whole show. If you saved over a million dollars for your retirement and you call or text us right now at 844-752-6692. That's 844-752-6692. 844-752-6692-844-PLAN-NYC. That's 844-PLAN-NYC. So, Chris, I appreciate you uh, filling in for Dad this week. It's good to have you on the show again. It's always good to be here, brother. Well, I thought today we, could, I thought we'd say we could talk a little bit about gambling, and I know you're not a gambler, so for the record. Um, but you know, when people make financial decisions, a lot of times it can be like chess, roulette, or poker. And chess being a game of skill where strategies are really thought out. Roulette maybe is maybe some skill involved, but some luck as well. And poker, let's face it. Uh, or actually, I'll take that back. Roulette is pure luck. <laughs> and then poker, on the other hand, maybe a little bit of luck and skill. So for each of these financial strategies, let's talk about whether it's chess, roulette, or poker. And the first one I think about is timing the market. Everyone loves to talk about when to get in the market, out of the market. Where do you actually put that under chess, roulette, and poker? Uh, you know, Ryan, I think that falls solidly into the roulette category just because, you know, history has shown and people have researched the bejesus out of this, is that no one can really accurately time the market persistently. And the folks that do, you know, it's still a question of, is it skill or is it luck? Yeah, I mean, pure luck, right? I mean, let's face it. You had every economist tell us we're going to go into recession this year. You should get out of the market. And what did the market do? Since last October, the market's up over 25%. And no one predicted that ahead of time. So if you weren't invested already, it's a big problem. The other issue is if you're retired or looking to retire, it's not just about the market going up or down. It's about the income on the portfolio. And if you have a well-diversified portfolio in the market that's paying dividends, it's always compounding. In fact, 40% of your return long-term comes from dividends. And if you're getting close to retirement, you need that income. You don't want to be getting in out of the market while those dividends are paying out and increasing over time. Yeah, the other issue too, Rai, is like a lot of times when people are timing the market, you know, they'll say it's they'll say it's because they believe something's going to happen. You know, really, it's about how they're feeling about it. They're investing based on emotion, you know, rather on the on the information that's been given to them at the time. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. It becomes emotional, and we know good retirement planning is about taking all the emotion out of it, being pragmatic, tying it into your goals. You know, another strategy that we use a lot. We're all about saving on taxes. We always say money saved in taxes is just as green as any money can make invested. And one decision right now you might want to make is, do I convert some of my IRA money, which I'm forced to take out in my 70s and pay taxes on it, and convert it to what we call Roth IRA, where you pay taxes today, but then that money is completely tax-free for life. You know, what strategy would you put that under, chess, roulette, or poker? You know, right. I would put this strongly in the poker category because there's a lot of variables that are out of your control. Like you don't know what taxes are going to be in the future. You know, you don't know if the amount that you're converting today, you know, is really going to be taxed at a lower rate, you know, say in 10 or 15 years. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of betting here, but there's also some strategy and saying, okay, you know, if I want to convert X amount of dollars, how's that going to affect me with my taxes today versus, you know, what I think I can save in taxes in the future. You know, it's a good point, because if you're in a low tax bracket today, it could be a good time to do that. Secondly, your retirement accounts are ticking tax time bombs, right? You're forced to take that money out in your 70s. That can increase your taxes, uh, you know, astronomically at that time. Also, we have a huge deficit. My guess is taxes have to go up in the future, not go down. So it's certainly something you want to look at when you're building that retirement plan. You know, it's it's a real key. I also those pro moves are about figuring out where you can optimize for taxes. And there's so many ways to do it. You know, the other issue that we really try to help our clients solve for and one that you have to think about is when is that retirement date? You know, is that skill? Is that luck? You know, how do you pick the day where you're actually living off the land or living off your portfolio? Well, you know, I think this one's a little bit more quantifiable. And I think this one falls in the category of chess because, you know, setting the, the ideal retirement date really just comes down to having a plan to reach that date. You know, and that looks at what are you saving today? What are you spending? 
And then where is that point where you break even, where you have enough money saved that you can feasibly live off the portfolio at a conservative rate of return? A hundred percent. And that's the key, right? It's like, it's always saying, well, I want to retire someday in the future, maybe my sixties, maybe my seventies. And the real key to good retirement planning is getting really granular about that number, right? Like, okay, maybe you don't retire at 66, but wouldn't it be nice to know that you could. So it's about reverse engineering, figure out, okay, this is the day I'd like to be retired or living off my portfolio. And then you reverse engineer and you look at how do I build my portfolio to do that? That's the real key. And you're thinking yourself right now, like, that's what I need right now. I need to figure out things about like, how do I save on taxes? Do I do Roth conversions here? I know I shouldn't be marking timing. I need a long-term investment plan. I need to figure out my retirement date. Well, here's your shot to do it. We're down to five slots left. If you saved over a million dollars for your retirement, my brother Chris and I will run for you our total financial master plan, and we'll do that with no obligation or cost. It's a full holistic review. We literally look at everything. There's not a firm out there that will do all this work up front. We go as far as building you, your own personalized financial portal. We'll give you a bird's eye view of your entire financial life. We're just going to hone in on every financial issue you need to address today, whether it's an income plan for retirement. How do you take Social Security? There's so many ways to take it. One right way for you. How do you draw from your portfolio? How do you factor in inflation? Your costs are going to double over the next 20 years. You need to account for that. We're going to put together a dynamic income plan so you don't run out of money. We're going to look at diversification. Markets have been crazy. They were down big last year, up big this year. Has your portfolio been like a yo-yo? Or have you been sitting in cash? Paralysis by analysis, you can't figure out what to do. We're going to put together a full investment game plan, tie it to your goals, show you how to grow your wealth, but most importantly, protect it over the rest of your life. And we're going to look at fees and taxes. Wall Street loves to sell you high cost, tax inefficient products, whether it's an annuity, mutual fund, brokerage product, structured product. We're going to do a deep dive of every investment you own, show you how to reduce all the costs on your portfolio and optimize it for taxes. It's now what you make. It's what you take. You'll get our full tax playbook. We have five slots left. If you saved over a million dollars, call or text right now at 844-752-6692. That's 844-752-6692. That's 844-PLAN-NYC, 844-PLAN-NYC. Chris, man, thanks for doing the show with me today. Great to have you on again. Right, it's always a pleasure. Love uh, doing the All Brother Weekly Radio Show. <laughs> it is an All Weekly Brother. If you want to learn more about our firm, Payne Capital Management, of course, that's P-A-Y-N-E. Simply go to bbullish.com. That's bbullish.com. Check it out. We got more, more money coming your way. This is More Money with economist Steve Moore. Now, Steve Moore. Welcome back, folks. This is the More Money Show on WBC Talk Radio. Uh, our next guest is a good friend, but also an expert on the technology industry, and that is Carol Zabo. And Carol is the vice president of a great organization called Net Choice, which is trying to make America number one in the technology industries and get the government off of the back of one of our most important industries. Carol, thanks so much for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we have uh, going on right now, and the reason I w so wanted to get you on the show is because we have this important uh, lawsuit and uh, trial that is going on now that I call, you know, the Biden administration v. Google. And Google is a company that I know some of our listeners, because we have a fairly conservative audience, may not like some of the political activities of Google and have complaints about some of the algorithms and so on. But Google is a incredible American success story. It has high uh, public approval in terms of the quality of the products that it provides. It, it's continually lowering prices. So, Carl, how in the world can the government say this is a monopoly? I thought monopolies raise prices, but this is a, this is a company that continues to innovate, continues to dominate globally because of a superior product, and now we have America's own Justice Department trying to tear this com this company down. Yeah, that's the, that's the question. It's what the heck is our government doing? Because it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, this is part and parcel for the Biden administration. I call it Bidenomics broke breaking what works. Right. Yeah, so we've right. got the war on uh, gas-powered cars. We got the war on gas-powered stoves. We've got the war on 
uh, on uh, supply chains. And now yep. we've got the war on America's technology leadership. And this case against Google is just that. So when we use Google search, we use it all the time. It's the number one search yep. engine on the yep. planet. Yeah, it's yeah. American made. What's the problem that we're seeing? Well, according to the Department of Justice, the fact that Google is the default search engine on Apple, yep. Safari, is a problem. Now, you're probably asking your listeners, like, what, what problem? What's the problem? Yeah. I, I love this. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't see know, any problem with that. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. the search engine I use all the time. They're like, no, right. the default is the problem. Because the Department of Justice's entire case is predicated on the following. They think that because Google is the default search engine, then that leads to size, which leads to quality of search. So essentially, the default makes it good. And clearly, the Department of Justice has never seen the movie The Field of Dreams, because the way that Google operated is, if you build it, they will come. So let's roll back the clock to 1999-2000. Yahoo mm -hmm. is the number one search engine. Yeah. Followed by by the way, hold, hold on, hold on, Carl, uh, Carl, 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 Carl yeah, hold, hold on just a sec. Because you just said something really important. I was just looking at this data myself, and I, I was surprised by it. It took Google many, many years. It's not as if Google just sprinted out and blew away the competition overnight. It took them many, many years to produce a product because there were dozens and dozens of search engines at the birth of the internet. And if you look at what happened as I, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, but Google kept capturing market share because more and more Americans and more and more people around the world were voluntarily choosing Google or uh, other search engines, whether Yahoo or the dozens. I mean, by the way, Bing. Let me just mention Bing because I get so upset. I, I just uh, bought a new computer, and the default uh, the default um, browser on that is Bing. And, you know, Carl, I hate Bing. I've been using it. It's not as good a product as Google. Google's a much better search engine. So uh, why are we penalizing a company for building a better mousetrap? Well, exactly right. And you, like every other Windows user, suffer with Bing as being the default search engine. So, and by the way, hold on, hold on. Again, sorry to, yeah. sorry to keep interrupting you, but why isn't that a why is that why is it okay for these computer companies to put Bing on, but not, but the Apple can't put make their default um, Google? I mean, how how does that make any sense? It, it absolutely doesn't. I mean, that's part of the, the crooked cronyism we're seeing in the Department of Justice. So the, right. the leader of this antitrust assault at the Department of Justice, a man by the name of Jonathan Cantor, actually was the attorney for Microsoft against Google. Oh, my God. Several years ago. Oh. So, oh I God. mean, this, this is the clearest conflict of interest that you could possibly have. And Microsoft actually proves that the Department of Justice's case makes no sense because 90% of Windows users change their default search from they Bing <laughs> to Google. Wow. <laughs> you mean they have to go into the, and they have to change what Microsoft is trying to get you to use Bing, but people don't want to use it. I mean, that's amazing story. I'm one of those people. You got to, you got to come over to my house and show me how to do that. Cause I'm, I'm tired of, of having Bing come up on my screen all the time. Now, uh, you had an interesting story. You broke a big story about the trial about some Russian search engine. T tell us about that, because I thought Russia was an enemy of the United States. Yeah, uh, we, we thought they were. We know they are. But according to our Department of Justice, that remains an open question. So just <laughs> yesterday, in, in an attempt to kind of keep alive this nonsensical case they have against Google, the Department of Justice actually said, well, you know, over in Russia, they have what's called a choice screen. So when you install a new web browser, you get a list of search engines from which to choose. And mm -hmm. Yandex is the number one choice in Russia. And now most of us are what, what, what is it called? What is it called again? Yandex, Y-A-N-D-X. So it is. So hold on, hold on. A, so the Yandex is a Russian search engine? Yes, Absolutely. Russian, a Russian. Faith, so you're saying Russian you're saying owned. that the yeah. you're saying uh, you know that the um, Justice Department in the United States 
thinks that this is unfair to a Russian company? Well, they, they actually got out <laughs> there and said Yandex is the number one choice amongst Russians when given a choice. Now, what they didn't say is that uh, in Russia, the authoritarian government highly recommend that you use Yandex. Highly recommend. So when Vladimir Putin says, I highly suggest you do something, that's not a real choice. That's a governmental mandate to use Yandex. But our Department of Justice says, well, in Russia, people choose Yandex. What, what they also skip over is in Europe, they actually have a similar choice screen. And guess what everyone picks in Europe, where they have substantially more freedoms than they do in Russia? They pick Google time and time and time again. And yeah. so the Department of Justice's case is so weak that they have to turn to authoritarian regimes <laughs> Oh, my God. Where choices don't exist as an example of how users are choosing. And I use that in very sarcastic quotation marks. Um, the unbelievable. So, Russian yeah, no, Carl, I mean, search. yeah, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's it's it really fits this pattern of the Biden administration. Yeah. As you know, I worked as an economist for the Trump administration. Uh, you know, we put America first. This is like putting Russia first and America last. Absolutely. I mean. It, it is it is really, really depressing. And so the, the other components of like Yandex, if you were to do a side by side search, uh, somebody did this just a couple months ago of uh, images of Ukraine yep. you know, on Google, you see war torn Ukraine in yeah. you know Russia on Yandex. You, it, everything looks beautiful. Everything looks oh my perfect gosh. and pristine. <laughs> so they're and, censoring. And, yeah. Oh, absolutely. This is yeah. it's. Uh, I mean, one of the other things is uh, the government's not talking about how the number one search engine uh, in China is Bing because it happens to be the only Western-run search engine that's allowed to operate in the CCP, under, CCP, <laughs> right. under, under CCP rules and regulations. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, the, the Department of Justice is saying to you, to me, to every other American that we are too stupid to understand how to change something. Yeah. That whatever yeah. I mean, whatever we are given, we just take. And that's so, Carl, part of yeah. for the Biden administration. And it's really yeah. sad. So one last point, Carl, we got literally about 45 seconds left. Uh, I made the point when we started this interview that the price of searches and the price of Google products uh, have been falling. Is that right? Absolutely. Not only that, think about the price of advertising across the board. Yep. Yep. One of the yep. few things that Bidenomics hasn't destroyed is that. And that's because yep. competition is robust. So there's no monopoly here, folks. This is an outrageous. How do you, how, in our 15 seconds left, Carl, do you think that uh, uh, that uh, Google is going to win this case? This is one of the easiest cases for them to win. And shame yep. on the Department of Justice for wasting our taxpayer money on it. Yeah. Amen. Uh, that is Carl Zabo, who is the vice president of a great organization called Net Choice. Carl, thanks for joining on a Saturday afternoon. We will be right back. This is the More Money Show on WBC Talk Radio. It's More Money with leading economist Steve Moore. Now, here's your host, Steve Moore. Welcome back, folks. This is the More Money Show on WABC Talk Radio. Thanks again so much for joining us this afternoon. Our next guest is Robert Bryce, who is truly one of the energy experts in this country and can explain the craziness that is going on with our energy policy in this country. Uh, you, you all know that the oil price just went up above $90 a barrel this week, and that is going to lead to well over $4 a gallon gasoline at the pump. So everybody is feeling the pain at the pump. And I get more questions, Robert, uh, from my uh, from my uh, listeners about what the heck is going on with these energy markets and gas prices. So Robert Bryce, by the way, is uh, a, uh, a lead expert in the country on energy policy. He has a podcast called uh, Power Hungry. Uh, he also has a uh, Substack that he does that I'll ask Robert to explain how you can access that. Uh, and so, uh, Robert, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. 
Always happy to be with you, Steve. And yes, oil prices are up. And why are they up? Well, supply and demand. And what are the reasons for this? Well, I mean, OPEC has something to do with it. The Saudis have cut supply. But, you know, I will say it, and I'm not a partisan. This administration, the Biden administration, is the most anti-hydrocarbon administration in American history. You know, they they don't want to see oil and gas. They don't want to see oil and gas drilling in this country. Robert. Robert, even more so than the uh, than the Obama administration, I would argue yes. In fact, wow. you remember the shale, wow. the shale revo- the shale revolution started under the Obama years, right? And it was only the shale yeah. revolution that allowed the Obama uh, crowd to uh, propose the clean power plan, right? Because nat- natural right. gas prices fell. So, but I mean, when you look at whether it was Keystone XL pipeline or now new restrictions on drilling in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, the, in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. I mean, this the the NGOs, the climate NGOs that uh, you know that are traditionally supported the Democratic Party. They are they are in full control. I think of the Biden administration, and I say that not as a partisan. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I am disgusted, Steve. Uh, yeah, I think I think Americans all around the country are disgusted. So we're seeing much, much higher prices of gasoline. Uh, when Trump left office, the price of gasoline was about about 240 a gallon and now i'm i'm estimating that the price uh nationally is going to go over four dollars a gallon what say you yeah well i'm not smart enough to predict prices uh like that but i think you know i think aside from the price i think the key things to keep in mind here steve are that this administration is pushing this narrative around electric vehicles and yes. electric vehicles are not going to save us from the oil and gas industry. There are 280 million motor vehicles on the road in the <laughs> United States. Right. This, this yep. country runs on gasoline and cheeseburgers and we're not going to change that for decades. <laughs> right. And, 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 and by the way, this, bi- this bias that somehow EVs are going to be the thing. And this administration has bent over backwards whether it's charging stations or, massive subsidies under the IRA for the battery vehicles. It's just, it's a run on the treasury in the name of climate change, and it's not going to have any effect. So I read something the other day, and I wonder if you can confirm this, that only about six or 7% of the cars on the road today are electric vehicles. Is that about right? Or what's your estimate? Well, no, I think, well, you, you've got one of your digits right. It's, I think the latest number is the 6% of new car sales. The latest new car sales are EVs, right? How can the that be? Wait, sales- wait, wait, wait. Hold, hold on, hold on, Robert. You're saying that only 6% of the new cars that are being bought are EVs? That's correct. Wow. Yeah, so well, wait a minute. I thought we- that, I mean, you, you, you listen to the administration and you'd think it was over half of the cars are EVs. Uh, you saw what happened with, uh, uh, with, uh, Jennifer Granholm, you know, where she's you know, basically doing advertisements uh, for for the EVs. Why? Why do you think that is that only six percent of the cars being bought are EVs? Because they're priced for the Benz and Beamer crowd, Steve. This has always been the case. The history of the electric vehicle is a century of failure, tailgating failure. I can point you to news clips in the Los Angeles Times from 1901 saying, (laughs) oh, the electric car is on the verge of commercial success. Um, (laughs) We've been hearing this all this time. And yet still, what is the average price? Last year, the average price of the new EV sold in the United States was $61,000. I mean, this is not for for the working class. And so we're we're subsidizing the Benz and Beamer crowd to to have luxury, high-performance vehicles. That's what the Tesla is. So even though the government is essentially paying people, bribing people as much as $7,500 each to buy an electric vehicle, people still aren't buying them? No, they're not. And and <laughs> I wrote about this on I wrote about this on my Substack, robertbrice.substack.com. Yeah. yeah. But in the yeah. in the second quarter, Ford Motor Company, you know, venerable company, they produce I think they I forgot the exact number of, of the EVs that they sold. They lost $73,000 for every EV they sold. Steve, <laughs> they're not making it up for what? in volume. <laughs> yes, they're just losing money. Yeah, you can't make that up in volume. <laughs> so here, here. <laughs> yeah, no, it's amazing. So I also, uh, and by the way, this is Robert Bryce, who's, as you all know, can tell, is one of the world's experts on energy policy and is telling us what's going wrong with the Biden cr- catastrophic American energy policy. But I was reading that the latest out of the Biden administration is they want to spend billions more to kind of bribe the Ford and General Motors to 
retrofit and transition all their auto plants to EVs. How does that make sense if only 6% of the cars that are being bought are EVs? It makes no sense whatsoever, Steve. And I, I'm just, I'm in Austin. I'm in the airport here. I just got back from, from Florida and I was lecturing yeah. there on what's going on. Remember, it was in April that the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, issued new rules that could require U.S. automakers to produce two-thirds of the vehicles they sell by, I think, 2032 to be fully electric, by 2032 or so. Wow. And then oh, the, wow. a month later, exactly a month later, the same agency, the EPA, proposed rules on power plants that would cripple the utility sector by forcing them to either use hydrogen or, or carbon capture and sequestration technologies that don't exist and force them to slash their greenhouse gas emissions. It's like, it's like they don't even read their own press releases or any idea about what the strategy is. I mean, it's truly remarkable. And I, I don't say this as a partisan, but what they're doing is deeply dangerous because it, it's going to yeah. undermine the basis of our economy. So we only have about two minutes left, uh, Robert sure. Bryson. Thanks again for joining us. But um, can you just tell our um, listeners, what is net zero? What does that mean? And when you talk about dangers to the U.S. economy, it seems to me a net zero strategy, which is all the talk in Washington these days, is crazy. Well, it is crazy, and it's not achievable, but it's not just the government, so right? It, what is, but what, but Robert, trying to toe the line, and, and, well, what and the is gist it? of it is, here's, here's, here it is. It, they're claiming that yeah. by 2050, that's the target all yeah. of them talk about, which is just 27 yeah. years away, that right. their CO2 emissions, their net greenhouse gas emissions will be zero. Because so hold, hold on, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on, Robert. Yeah. Let me just, so I want to, because I want to make sure people understand what you're saying. So if you go to zero carbon emissions, you're basically going to have to outlaw all coal, all gas, all oil, all fossil fuels would effectively be, be killed, right? Well, or you create some unobtainium in the meantime that it's going to somehow magically replace them, or you suddenly have carbon capture and sequestration, or suddenly oh, you're yeah. able to deploy renewables at such massive scale, but it can't be done. It won't happen right. because it can't happen, Steve. So one last question on the way out, uh, Robert, um, is this, I get asked this all the time by my listeners, is this some kind of a, just an assault against capitalism and prosperity? Because if you wanted to kill capitalism, free market capitalism, and if you wanted to destroy America's prosperity, we're the richest country in the history of the world, destroying the energy sources of the country is a pretty good way to do that. Well, there's 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 no question about it. And I get asked the similar question, Steve, about why, you know, what's the motivation here? I think there is no doubt that for some uh, some elements of the NGO and the, and the, the left, right, the climate activist yeah. groups, they are anti-capitalist and they make that clear. But I think there's also some romanticism in this, too, about, oh, we're using hydrocarbons. We shouldn't use nuclear. We need to go back to the garden, right? right. There's a lot of this theology around climate change and the catastrophism rhymes very closely with Christian theology. So yes. there's some as aspects of this that are uh, very religious. And so you can't discount that part of that. And I think yeah. that that is a, a big influence. Well, uh Robert, uh, thanks again for joining us. That's Robert Bryce. Uh, uh, one last time, how do people access your Substack? I'm, I'm, I'm easy to find on the Google, but on Substack, robertbryce.substack.com. Thank you, Robert Bryce, uh, one of the world's geniuses when it comes to energy policy. And I'm sorry, folks, it's a very, very sad story what we're doing to our country.